Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It is a brand new day. It is the dawn of a brand new era this morning. uh, We come to you from an incredibly brand new studio, entirely fitting with our continuing success, entirely fitting with our surging ratings, entirely fitting and in the spirit of building a greater Britain, because that's what we're doing here at Talk Radio with your help. While other news outlets are busy telling you precisely what is wrong with the world, we'll be busy telling you what's right with it, where we can get to and what we can achieve together. This morning, the sun is shining as we look Look over uh, the River Thames, looking out from the very, very heights of this building next to the Shard, taking in the magnificent vista of Tower Bridge, Canary Wharf and the whole of the City of London. Just as the lifting of the lockdown continues, we have much to discuss. We're going to be joined this morning by Robbie Gibb, former advisor to Number 10, who will give us his view on how the government is doing uh, and whether the new polling techniques are actually telling the real story. Extraordinarily, according to those doom mongers over at Sky News, there are now 49% of people who don't think the government is doing a very good job, while just 47% think that the government and Boris Johnson are doing just fine. We'll dig a little deeper into the data and we'll be telling you why you should take it all with a pinch of salt. We'll also be asking why union leaders and militant types seem to have become experts in virology all of a sudden and the spread of coronavirus. Teachers and transport workers are frightened to go back to work. Well, of course, that's only if they happen to belong to one of the more militant trade unions. As ever, we want to hear from you, of course. You are the eyes and ears of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You are the people who bring common sense to the table, and we want to know what the weekend was like for you. We want to know what you were up to. We want to know what you were seeing, what you were being told, what you're being told now. If you're going back to work today, we want to hear from you as well. 0344 499 1000. Coming up a little bit later on, we'll be talking to Peter Hitchens as well. He joins us for another conversation, part seven uh, of our very long chat about what is going wrong with what he believes is the government's decision-making process. Plus, we'll be talking to MPs, we'll be talking to teachers, and, of course, we want to hear from you. 0344 499 1000. Uh, You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest-growing radio station on the planet in a brand-new studio. What more could you want? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it's time to kick things off as we look out over what is a very beautiful looking Monday morning here uh, in the centre of London. Many of you will have been going back to work. Thanks to Sadiq Khan. It's cost me £11.50 extra to get to work today because he's put the congestion charge back on. What a complete and utter idiot, idiocy thing to do because now loads and loads of people who would have been coming in by car are going to have to travel on public transport, which, as we all know, the government has said you should try to avoid doing. Let's talk to Sir Robbie Gibb, who is, of course, former head. Uh, Head of Communications at Downing Street, political commentator as well. Uh, very, very good morning to you, Robbie. 
Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Now, let's kick off where we mean to begin, which is how do you think the government is doing so far? Do you share this sort of what seems to be slightly growing concern from some quarters that, that they've slightly dropped the ball? Look, I mean, I don't buy that at all. And I don't even think that's the, the view of the British public. Um, I mean, there's, there's a sort of one poll that pops up and everyone gets very excited. And I was always taught when I was involved in journalism that, you know, you shouldn't put too much store by, by one poll. I still believe the public do support the overall uh, approach of the government. Um, and that's probably why the government are still massively ahead in the opinion polls. Now, the reason I think the public are backing the government and the government strategy is because the strategy is actually working. From the start, they said they're going to follow the science, and they've done that. They said they're going to protect the economy to do whatever it takes, not not being sort of penny-pinching and say, oh, we can't do that, so the, the furlough scheme and business loans, protecting the NHS, the more capacity. We don't hear about the fact that they built all these hospitals in a period of two weeks. You know, huge um, effort from the government and everybody involved to get that done. The lockdown has clearly controlled the virus, and now they are slowly easing the lockdown. Mm. Very, okay. But, you know, of course, the message is, is more complicated than stay at home. And that, that goes, you know, that goes almost without saying, but I think people who claim the public don't um, understand it are completely mis misjudging yes. the public. Yes, I think, I think you're absolutely right. We know what's fascinating to me as well is the way that pollsters now, and, and I'm not going to make any accusations about YouGov and Sky cooking this one up together, but, I mean, it does seem to me that um, somebody went to YouGov and said, this is kind of what we'd like to see in a poll, because they've suddenly invented this thing about, you know, whether you approve or disapprove of something, right? They tried it on with Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson last week, and Evening Standard said, you know, Keir Starmer's actually more popular than Boris Johnson, which was nonsense, according to the data. The same thing here, because even Sky, when they were explaining it yesterday, they said, well, to be honest, it's geographically split because in London, believe it or not, people don't think the government is doing such a good job as everybody else does in the rest of the country. So it's basically Londoners versus everybody else. Yeah, one of the things about uh, commissioning polls is, you know, why are they commissioned? I, I, I wouldn't be as, um, as negative about it as you are, but, the, you know, people, journalists commission polls because they want to get a story out. Yeah. Uh, and a poll that says it's all going well from a journalistic point of view is often seen as less newsworthy. As, mm. as something. But, but I personally, my view of journalism, we discussed this before, is that I think the public want to know what's going on, not just what's going wrong. And I, think yes. I find it utterly tiresome, this constant battering of the government who, quite frankly, are doing everything they can possibly do with the best possible advice and a team of dedicated civil servants and public servants trying to do the right thing. But I think the government's, I think the public see through all that mm. and they, they see the press conferences and they see the scientists, scientific advisors and they see the ministers live and uninterrupted by, by journalists who try to misrepresent what they're doing. Yeah. And I think they think, yes, of course, they haven't made, ev everything hasn't gone absolutely perfectly. But people are reasonable. The great British public realise that, you know, nobody is perfect, no decision is perfect. And they see, right, the government are, are doing their best in very difficult circumstances. And I think they genuinely understand that this is actually a public health crisis. You know, it isn't an emergency, if you like, a disaster zone. And so, actually, the fact that most of the country has been able to go about their business, by and large, um, reasonably easily since the lockdown has started to be lifted. You know, I don't recognise the people, and one I'm going to be talking to Peter Hitchens later on, who's always going on about how we're all under house house arrest and it's all terrible and our liberty's been taken away. I don't recognise that picture. Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting this weekend. There's been minor change in the uh, advice from government about easing the lockdown. But you could see um, people going about their business, 
operating on very sort of you know, common sense mm. terms, you know, keeping their distance, behaving like you'd expect British people to do. And, you know, I, 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 like, like you, I don't, I mean, it, I, would, I want to go to restaurants, I want to do all the things that I normally would do. But th- these are not being imposed on the country for, you know, for just to be unpleasant. They're right. doing it to try and save lives. And, and, and I think the public understand that. Well, exactly. I mean, the fact that you can't go out to a restaurant as much as I'd like to buy you dinner, Sir Robbie, um, you know, well, you can probably handle it for a few more weeks if, if that's what it is. It's kind of a first world problem, isn't it? But I guess this week the, the battleground is very much going to be the schools, whether they reopen, whether or not um, some of those on the left in the more militant unions actually manage to keep schools shut. I mean, what they seem to keep forgetting in this conversation is that an awful lot of schools have remained open anyway. Well, that's how I say. My wife's a teacher, and um, her she's a special needs uh, teacher, and their school right. has been open throughout this period. Look, I mean, like I do understand, you know, why parents and some teachers, you know, are worried about the, the planned return to school um, for for their kids. Obviously, you know, you you would, but the government do have a plan, and the plan, you know, is making schools safe. I mean, you might find it useful that there's some of the detail which has seemed to be lost in this about what is this plan. I mean, as we know, school size is going to be limited to 15 pupils yeah. for year one and six. But those kids are not, won't be mixing with other children. It's mm. just mixing with those 15. They stay together at lunchtime together. Mm. They have staggered arrival and departure times. They'll have as many lessons as they can outside if the weather's good. There'll be huge hygiene and cleaning process in these schools and yeah. a lot of hand washing and risk assessment. And what we've learned from other other countries, Denmark, for example, have had a return for primary school. There's been no uptick at all. Mm. And I think the front page of, I think the Telegraph today, I think it's Australia, saying there's a new study that says that COVID-19 does not spread widely in schools. Yes. Now, could you imagine if other sectors took this position, like doctors and nurses took the attitude that, oh, it's too risky. Yeah, We're not oh, I know. Supermarket staff, oh, I'm not going to, you know, look, we all need to pull together and do what we can Life is about risk, and this is one of the absurd aspects of the interview that Michael Gove did on my yesterday. Mm. Asked the question, "Can you guarantee?" Well, you can't guarantee anything. No. When you get into a car or go on a plane or eating too much cake, you know, whatever it happens <laughs> to be. Well, this is <laughs> what the argument. This is the argument I was having with people the other week when Stay Alert was, was the first message that came out. And people were being ridiculously specific, you know, as if to say that the government should be issuing uh, instructions on how to do everything. You know, and I was kind of making fun of it, saying, well, you know, surely you, we have some free will left in this country. Surely you don't expect Boris Johnson to have to give you permission to go and see somebody um, because you're not sure if you're allowed to go and see them when they've already said you are allowed to go and see somebody. You know, it's kind of mad, isn't it? It, it's, I, don't, I don't think it's genuine. I think it's the people being obtuse. Yeah. If you wind back to the original um, stay-at-home message, there was that, that time there was criticism about the communication. Mm. I remember, I think I even may have come on your show and discussed it. Yes. Every single time, people are looking for something to criticise. Mm. And I think the British public see through that, and I think they understand what they've got to do. Um, what does frustrate me, and I've made this point before, is at the press conferences, you've got the leading scientists that have all the data. I want to see lots more questioning of those scientists so that the public can get the answers to the questions that we're all asking for about where this disease is going, when there might be a vaccine, Mm. and a whole range of other 
issues around the disease. It's not all about culpability or whose fault it is. And what should have been done when as well? Because also there's been some very encouraging um, sort of statistical information that's come out in the last few days. For example, the fact that fewer people now seem to be getting infected in London, um, which means, you know, I'm hoping that it may be that we've sort of not just passed the peak, but it's actually on the way out. Yeah, well, there was, was that 24 cases, new cases yeah. in, in London. Mm. No, it is, it is exciting. I mean, what we, I mean, this is the, the underlying all of this is there are so many unknowns that the government are um, driving blind. We're all driving blind. We, you know, it looks on trust 24 new cases in London that it, it seems safe to go back and business as usual. Mm. But we just, I mean, I think the government's approach to the unlocking or easing off the lockdown is absolutely right doing it in baby steps yeah make a small change see how people react see if there's any uptick in the um the r figure the, the amount of infection you know going on and keep checking keep checking if if it's looking good then go to the next stage on you know unlock other different aspects of the economy and people's lives and i think that is the the right approach and i you know despite what that particular poll is is saying but you know i just i do not believe that that very common sense message is not you know right in tune mm. with what people think no indeed and 47 percent approval rating for a sitting prime minister in the midst of a pandemic is pretty good i would say yeah and you know look i mean i totally totally agree i mean i mean the, normally we we judge the conduct and the popularity of government based on voting intention and mm. the voting intention still puts uh, Conservatives, Wales, and they just coming back to sort of Keir Starmer mentioned earlier. Yes, you know, Keir Starmer, you know, the shiny new leader of the opposition, has an opportunity now uh, to step up to the plate, be a different kind of Labour leader, yeah. and back the government on the return of schools rather than backing the trade unions. Mm. And but he's not; he's sitting on the fence, and he's been allowed to get away with it. But what people are looking to, he, you know, the Labour Party has a long uh, track record of close relations with the trade unions. There's an opportunity now to say that he's a different kind of Labour leader, going yep. back to sort of Tony Blair level, when it actually taking tough choices. But he's been allowed to get away with it by by a media more interested in bashing a current yes. government trying to do the right thing. Well, I find it extraordinary how the media has kind of taken to Keir Starmer as if he's the great new messiah of politics, you know, and they keep using that word forensic, which I've now banned from anybody using <laughs> when describing Keir Starmer, you know, just because he's a lawyer. It's almost as though, oh, he's a very clever man because he's a QC. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not buying that. And also, um, he's sitting on the fence is his speciality. He sat on the fence on Brexit and came up with that disastrous Labour Party policy in the last election where they were, you know, pro-Brexit in Brexit seats uh, and, and pro-Remain in Remain seats? Well, yeah, I, uh, when I was at number 10, I was um, in a, a, a sitting um, in, in, in meetings where there was cross-party talks to trying to find a consensus to try and get Brexit over the line. And there was an incident where we had presented a potential document for him and the Labour Party to agree to, for him to say, oh, that's a total disaster, I don't mm. agree with that at all, only for him to be told that it was a cut-and-paste job from his own document. <laughs> I mean, he, he, you know, disin, disingenuous is his middle name. Yes, absolutely right. And tell me, what do you make of Sadiq Khan, without wishing to turn this into too much of a London-centric conversation? Mm. We were all absolutely flabbergasted on Friday when we were told, after having been uh, instructed that uh, TfL was apparently running out of money, uh, after being told by the Prime Minister's office that, you know, best thing to do is to drive into work if you if you can because basically public transport it should be only for key workers who can't afford to go any other way and he suddenly puts the congestion charge back 
Well, I'm not a fan of the congestion charge at the best of time, mm. and it seems to be a total confusion about what people should be doing. If people, you know, need to drop their anti-car rhetoric at the yeah. time, because that's the safest, safest way to go. I mean, all the way through this, um, every time is a decision that is in his area of uh, competence he will then take a decision and then blame the government. Yeah. I think I'm sort of fed up with it, to be honest. Well, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, I don't think there's many people um, in London now, surely, uh, who would back this as a piece of political, um, um, you know, it's a sense. It's just, it seems completely nonsense. And I'm hoping he hasn't done it just in order to stick two fingers up to Downing Street. Look, I mean, yeah, who knows? He's a very uh, uh, political uh, politician taking decisions mm. on the basis of politics. One of the... One of the aspects has been very impressive about the, you know, the government's response is how, how they've dealt with the economy yeah. right from the very beginning they said they will do whatever it takes this is not the time to to you know to penny pinch and to keep, need to keep you know, the furlough scheme keeping yeah. jobs and loan scheme i think the same should apply in london in relation to the congestion time this is not a time to no. Reinstate well, I was rather hoping that over the weekend Boris might have overruled him, but of course the trouble is, as somebody pointed out to me, Boris, the, the one weakness that Boris has and the one thing he has in common with Sadiq Khan is this kind of love of bicycles and this love of getting everybody out of their cars and you know, onto the streets. Yeah, I think that's maybe I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we'd like to not see that, please. Thank you very much. What do you make of the quarantine uh, suggestions as well? Because obviously a lot of people think that one of the ways of getting us back to normal, particularly for those people who have either been tested and have found themselves to either uh, be, be no longer infectious or have not got the disease, uh, they might fancy getting on a plane and going somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think the... I mean, there's lots of problems, aren't there, with the, with the flight, is that um, to have social distancing on a plane... Mm is is uh tricky because obviously as you know when you cram onto a you know a plane you're sitting side mm. by side so that causes issues i know that some um, a number of business uh people i've been working with you know are very worried by the effect if they come into the uk on a flight and then having to stay at home for for two weeks yeah. and you know that, that 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 certainly is a, a problem but look <sighs> I don't want to fall into the the trap that others have. Is look, the government's decisions are based on the science, and you know that you know that here's me sitting at home without all the access to the information that the government have. Mm. I can see I can see the argument why, you know, it it's a pain, um, but it's not as big as a pain as, as as having this virus going unchecked. Well, exactly right. And do you see the kind of lifting of the lockdown? going through the gears, as it were, over the next two weeks, so that, say, for example, by the time June rolls around, and if we do have uh, schools reopening, that we will, you and I will be having a conversation which is entirely different because lots more will be going on. Yeah, so the next stage is, I think, the 1st of June, where we, there's a whole list of other areas of lifting, including, uh, hopefully, football behind closed doors. But I think I mean, what my understanding is the government's position is that they do it in these steps that allows the data to come and they can update their, the advice. Mm. So if, I mean, it is interesting. The very small change on Wednesday has definitely changed. I don't know if it's your experience, but changed the mood and the people out. Yes. The it feels very different. People still being very mindful of their responsibilities, no uh -huh. question about it. Um, but I think that you can make a small change and make a big difference. And then I think they need to look at the data. But my, from all I'm hearing from, from uh, friends still in government is that they're on course to do further uh, lifting on the first, you know, announced yeah. on the first of June. And then we'll see where we go. 
Yes, I think that's absolutely right. So, Robbie Gibbs, thank you very much indeed. Political commentator, former head of communications at Downing Street, giving us his view uh, on how this government is doing. And it is very different from that Sky poll in which I would suggest to you, uh, without wishing to cast any aspersions whatsoever on YouGov or indeed on Sky News, that that is entirely the suggested uh, sort of result that they were looking for. They were looking for some way of criticising the government. So they've practically invented a new way of polling. They basically said, when we ask people, how well do you think the government is doing? You know, give us a number from one to ten. They're also going to say, how badly do you think the government is doing? Uh, thereby, they're going to come up with some kind of cross-pollinated load of old nonsense, which makes it look as though nobody thinks the government's doing a good job, which is entirely incorrect. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, it's Monday. Monday morning, just after 11 o'clock, it's time to say a very good morning uh, to our good friend and competent, uh, Mr Peter Hitchens. Peter, very good morning. Morning to you. I have read with interest your uh, historically uh, historically based piece this weekend about Churchill and about the debt that, uh, that we got into. Do you want to just give us a quick summation of that so people well, can hear it? My point was simply this, that, that governments would spend more money than they have get into deep trouble. Hmm. And there are two historical facts which are known to me because I researched them for my last book. Uh, which are generally either unknown or actually rejected by people because they simply refuse to admit that they're the case. Uh, the first is that in 1934, this country defaulted on the gigantic debt which we owed to the United States for First World War support, uh, calculated now to be something in the region of $225 billion. Right. Uh, and we simply stopped paying it, and we stopped paying interest on it, and so basically we became a sort of third world defaulter nation and put ourselves permanently and forever in the pocket of the USA. Uh, we then, How the was second, that manifested, though? Because well, it manifested itself increasingly in our diminished power. Uh, as a, we, the, the, the problem became particularly, and indeed also very frosty relations between us and the United States. Uh, this is a fascinating piece of history, but uh, people are still beguiled by this great shoulder-to-shoulder myth of the alliance between us and the USA. Uh, in 1939, the Americans were simply refusing to, uh, under something called the Neutrality Act, which was passed in revenge for our default and our debts, uh, were refusing to give us any uh, weapons at all unless we paid cash on the nail for them. And so in the period uh, between the beginning of the war and the end of 1940, uh, secret fast convoys were constantly speeding across the Atlantic to, uh, to Canada, uh, carrying all the life savings of the British Empire, right. inc- including all the gold we had, right back to the gold moidores and doubloons that we'd looted from Spanish galleons in the, in the 16th century. Uh, everything we had, plus a lot of negotiable securities, was simply sent across, and most of it never came back. Uh, it was used to pay for the weapons we desperately needed. And then around about the end of 1940, beginning of 1941, we simply ran out of money. Hmm. Uh, and the Americans put us through uh, a, sort of, uh, a sort of audit, uh, going right the way through our national accounts. We had to open up everything to them. And the Senate Foreign Relations Committee were eventually told by Henry Morgenthau, who was Roosevelt's Secretary for the Treasury, uh, that if they didn't come up with some way of helping us, then we'd just have to stop fighting. And that's where the famous Lend-Lease began, uh, under which the Americans uh, supplied us with war material and, and, and other help to keep us going through the war. But they abruptly ended all that in 1945, uh, and we then had to go back to them uh, Maynard Keynes, the most brilliant economist probably ever lived, uh, negotiated alone. We thought that the Americans would be full of gratitude for our alliance with them. On the contrary, they they were they gave pretty hard terms. They gave us the loan, uh, which kept us going through the through the uh, forty or 
so years after the war. And you'll probably remember uh, being of, of, a, of a certain age, uh, just what a sort of fairly scraped, pinched, grey, half-rebuilt country this was for many years, because we were <laughs> well, spending I mean... so much of our time paying off and paying the interest on this enormous debt. And it put us, first of all, in hot to the United States. One of the reasons why they were able to pull the rug out from under us over Suez in 1956, when we started that mad war with the French against Egypt, uh, was because we simply didn't have financial independence. The point I was making is that there are consequences to getting into debt. Yes. And no, I get that. But this is... Is, is, is different. I mean, the, the, the government is, is borrowing uh, money to some extent which doesn't exist. Yeah, well, I was going to say, where are we borrowing this money from? Right, because... We're borrowing it from financial institutions, uh, pension funds, insurance companies, people like that, right. who buy up uh, things called government guilds. Uh, at, uh, but increasingly, these these are, are sold off at very very low interest rates, which are then passed on, of course, to the people who've in, who've invested in yeah. pension funds, uh, or passed on to people who take out insurance policies. You have to pay more for them, and it spreads into the system. Uh, and then there's also, there's also this, been this quantitative easing, the, the, basically the creation of money, the printing of money yes. without printing it, which, which has been going on for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, my, my, see, my, the only difference I would I would have with your argument is yeah. that because now we haven't borrowed it from an entity as such or a foreign power as such. Then, if we, for example, defaulted on it in the same way that we defaulted against the Americans, um, what would the consequences be, if any? There might not I, be. My, any. my guess is, and I think this, this, we really are in the realms of guesswork because no one's ever borrowed this much no. money in peacetime before, right. and probably not in wartime. The rate at which Rishi Sunak is handing out money in the, in the furlough scheme is, is so colossal that no one's ever seen anything like it in their lives. And when he extended it to October last week, a very large numbers of people in the city and in, and in, in the, the economist fraternity just gasped mm. and stretched their eyes because they couldn't believe that he'd done this uh, because it is so vast. I think the danger has to be that these pretty blue and brown beer tokens which circulate as money in this country uh, in, exist entirely on the basis of confidence. The world has to have confidence. Yes. In them and we have to. And, and you risk losing that confidence. First of all, our, our, our international credit ratings have been sliding. Uh, over the past 10 years or so. Uh, if they slide much more, it becomes much, much harder for us to, to do this. And also the value of the pound against both assets and other currencies begins to slide, mm. which inevitably leads to quite serious inflation. But the pound has uh, been doing better since we left the European Union, has it not? Well, uh, I mean, it, the, pound, the pound devalued on the, the day of the, the, of the referendum result, not because of the pound, but because everybody knew it, it, it was overvalued. Right. It has, has been for some time. It's not necessarily a good thing to have an overvalued currency. Uh, it, it, it means that uh, you, you actually strangle your economy mm. in many ways and make exports difficult. Yeah. I, I don't want this to be an economics lesson, but I would say that the, the, the danger is, it seems to me, that first of all, the interest rates become so low that people will no longer save. So where are they well, going? I think we were already at that point. Where I don't. I mean, most people well, now people have to save because if if you want a pension, you've got to save. Well, you put it in a pension fund, but you don't. Well, yes, you but don't have a savings that, account. It's the pension funds that are, and indeed the the life insurance schemes which are lending to the government, but the government can force them to lend to them yes. quite low interest rates. Right. But I think your point is and well this made. Is, this is the way it works. And so in the end, it works into it, it, those people who, are, who have who've been, uh, who've been prudent and have saved uh, will suffer. Uh, and there are other things. The government will also have to go for tax rises. There, were, there, are just, there was a fascinating piece in the Financial Times on, on Saturday, uh, which I, is, is, is online to some people, but not... Yes, yeah, unfortunately, it's behind a paywall, a lot of the FTs. Though, Most of it, it is. This, it's by somebody called Emma Agiermang. Okay. It's called The Tax, How We Will Be Paying for the Pandemic Measures. 
And it goes through all the things right up to the most frightening of all, which is the capital levy which may come, which mm. is basically a, a, a raid on everybody's savings, including the value of your house. Well, they won't get anything from me because I haven't got any savings. Well, they're your, they're your house? <laughs> no. Well, I, I live by the rental world of... Uh, well, of, then, you, then, then you're OK. But yeah. an awful lot of people... Are, well, I've been very prudent about savings, I've been very prudent on that. Well, you see, I think it's absolutely disgusting and disgraceful that people who have saved for all their lives and get a house and hope to pass it on to their children, then have that house taken off them already by the yeah. people who say they must pay for their own social care. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an aspect that's of shocking. it. That's shocking. I think, I think it's, it is shocking, but it, the thing is that everything is in the next year or so is going to be presented as an emergency. Hmm. We're all going to be told, this is coronavirus emergency, we have to do it, it's all part of the great national effort against the virus. And there will be no argument against it. Parliament will fold, most of the media will fold, they'll say, well, we have to do it, because we've got ourselves into such a deep pit yes. that anybody or... who claims they're going to get us out of it is, is, is going to get some sort of, of national all pull together support. And when it's all over, and we're all broke, uh, and we've, we've got used to much higher levels of in income tax and VAT and national insurance... And, all, and, and fuel duties and all the other ways in which the government sticks its hands in our pockets, which it does all the time, directly and in, indirectly, uh, it'll be too late to do anything about it, because it will have happened. It'll be a fait accompli. And well, it, well, you say that, but of course, there is, there is an alternative, and the alternative is that you're completely wrong, yeah, and no, that the government, also, hang on, that true, the, yeah. well, hang on, that the government is now in a position which is so bad, rather like uh, the way that some companies were never allowed to go bankrupt. I'm not talking about the banks, I'm talking about other companies, media companies, who were in hocks to such an extent to the banks, that the banks actually kept them going because they knew that if they let them die they'd lose all their money so they kept them going kept them going until they got their money back now i believe that the government has been, in, has been put in this ridiculously and i agree with you that it's a ridiculous situation that it's crazy that they're borrowing all this money but because it's so unprecedented it may well be that they decide the best way out of it is just to keep borrowing and never to try and put more taxes on the people I don't think i don't think they can do that i mean I, we can we, we can argue about they it. could you, though it's futile uh, if they do, I think the danger of, of, of a really serious inflationary spiral and a collapse of confidence in the currency does become much greater. I think they ha they're going to have to put taxes up. The alternative would have to be, for instance, to make immediate serious cuts in the NHS to freeze the wages of the very public service. Well, they could, but they could actually, you know, hush my mouth for saying it, but they could, find, they could actually find places to cut the NHS. I was uh, shown a couple of adverts for job vacancies in the NHS the other day, and they have things like diversity coordinators for £65,000. You know, you could go through, I'm sure like I could, uh, with a hot knife through butter, the NHS budget, and cut it to ribbons and make it an awful lot cheaper and make the money uh, be spent better and more efficiently. If it's so easy, you have to ask yourself why nobody's done it so far. Well, it's not in anybody's interest the to power do it. Of the, the power of the, of, the, of the health service unions is, as pressure groups, and also as brilliant publicists, uh, is considerable, and government's very afraid to take them. I'd say of we, course can't, we, can't, we, we, we can't predict... We can only speculate. Mm. My speculation is what I've said. Yours is different from mine. Yes. I would, but I think um, I, I would advise people to, to beware of, of the idea. Worryingly, uh, you know, I keep meeting pay, people, this Peter. huge payday loan, which Rishi yeah. Sunak has provided for the nation, will not have to be paid back. And nice, smiling Rishi Sunak won't be the person who comes <laughs> after you for it. It will be those no. hard-faced guys. It'll be the Grim Reaper. The HMRC. Yeah. Uh, no, what I wanted to say uh, to you was... They're very was... diligent and they keep... Keep on coming. What I wanted to say to you was that, worryingly, I keep meeting people who, who say things to me like, I think Peter Hitchens might be right.
I'm sorry about that. I mean, Troubles is, me. The, 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 I believe there is cognitive behaviour therapy for this available <laughs> on, on the NHS. Now, t- talking of the unions, uh, are we about to see, do you think, a kind of a, a lining up of the battle uh, lines with uh, the teachers' unions, the transport unions, who are all amazingly frightened to go back to work, but only seemingly if they're in one of the big unions? I think that the problem remains, and here we come back to the basic, the basis of this whole argument, the problem remains the government has frightened the population so much that it is very difficult for it now to argue that it's safe for people to go back uh, to normal, either on the transport system or mm. in the schools. Uh, I personally think that the risk of doing so is very small, but that uh, remains a, a minority opinion. Again, yeah. I, another of my... Uh, I, I was out bicycling in, in, in one of the, the more prosperous areas of Oxford this morning where the roads are very wide and the pavements are very wide. Yeah. And as I whizzed on my bicycle down the road and, and listening to birdsong, uh, my bicycle was audible to a to a, a, a woman, a mother, and her three children on right. the pavement, and she gathered her brood together and pulled them away from the edge of the road, lest really? as I passed, right. I infected them with the deadly virus. Right. This is the extent of the fear. Yes, uh, this is in this is and that was in highly educated North Oxford. This isn't in some superstitious area. It was some highly edu- highly educated person gathered her children away from the edge of the road, lest as I went by, and I, I'm boasting here, but about 15 miles an hour. Yes. I infected them. Tragically, of course, education is no uh, no substitute for common sense, not, no. and an awful lot of these overeducated buffoons are but the ones, the very ones that are leading this madness. This is the extent of the fear which the government has created. It's created so much fear it now can't get it back under control. Mm. And, the, the, and all the teachers' unions need to say was, well, if, if you want to open the schools, why did you close them in the first place? And it's a very good question. Uh, but, and the, the measures which are being proposed in any case, all this, you know, wearing of, of muzzles and, and gloves and standing apart from mm. immense distances and all that, they're, they're as unsustainable as a New Year, New Year resolution. You could not keep this up. A society could not keep up the measures which are being proposed in the transport system and the school system for any length of time. People just won't be able to do it. No. The morning where they'll, they'll and that's run, when out, I run think... out of masks, they'll run out yeah. of gloves, they'll run out of sanitizer. Someone will make a mistake, there'll be too many people in the room. It's unsustainable. I and mean, the fact is, it doesn't matter that it's unsustainable because it's crazy. Well, uh, it's the, not the crazy day, because the here's the thing. The disease is not, it simply is, is two people working in schools is very minor. Yes. Well, of course it is. And also, as we were talking to a, 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 an author who's written a book about Checkpoint Charlie, in Germany right now, one of the regions of Germany has proved itself to be coronavirus free. It has now got no new cases. It has had no new cases for some considerable time. We're learning that in London, there was only I think 24 cases the other day. Uh, it could well be that the virus is starting to diminish, in which case all of these social measures may not be necessary uh, anymore anyway. So I think as time goes on, you know, it will be a case of kind of physician heal thyself, won't it? Well, I wish that that was so, but the government's insistence is until the vaccine is developed, uh, then fundamentally this this sort of thing is going to have to continue indefinitely. I don't think so. I really well, don't. I, I, because, I, I, I hope you're right. Well, I mean, did you see in Ger- again in Germany, again in Germany, they had people drinking in bars, watching football, you know, heaven forfend. It was actually going on. They were standing quite a long way from each other. Well, that's the thing, you see. I, 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 pubs, if, if, they, if they're allowed to reopen, they won't be able to function if they have to, to keep half or two-thirds of their tables and chairs empty, or if they can only function in good weather when people can drink outside. That's not a basis for business. It, yeah. can't, it won't work. They've, they've lost enough as it is. If they have to come back with, with, with profits restricted to almost nothing, probably income restricted, they won't make any profits on that if they hire any staff. 
and for socially distanced pubs, staff are necessary to bring stuff to the table. How are they going to afford this? It won't work. It's, it, it, and it, therefore it will have to change. Nice pictures of people in, 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 in the gendarme march in, 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 in Berlin having a drink, but it, it's not actually uh, reached a practical level. And until we accept that this thing was a mad, over, overreacting panic, which it was, uh, we're stuck with this. And the, the government has to admit it, uh, but in admitting it, it has to admit it was wrong. And this is terribly difficult to get mm. governments to admit that they're wrong. Yes, no, I think that's absolutely right. But the, 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 the thing is, though, that every single week that you and I have spoken, something else has changed. And so, you know, the, the, the narrative has changed or, you know, one of the goalposts has moved. You know, nothing is as it was, you know, at the beginning of this. From se- This is the seventh week we've spoken. Yeah. And since week one, every single week, something else has changed. And so the story moves. And so, you know, yes. I don't yes, think so much. I think that the, the, the superficiality of of it all. Fundamentally, a, a grave and damaging mistake has been made, which has, has transformed society for the worse, and there's, there's, there's no obvious way out. And, the, uh, and at the same time, as I say, we're clocking up on the meter this most enormous bill, which is going to have to be paid. And when is it? When is the emergency budget? Well, maybe budget? not. When I is mean, the you've told me. it's going to be? There will be an emergency well, budget, I promise you that. But your when history, but your history lesson, but your history lesson from earlier on says that yeah. we can we can sometimes say no, we're actually not going to pay you back. We're going well, to default it, on the loan. Yeah, but the thing about the thing about being a debtor is that you put yourself in the power of the people to whom you are in debt. Maybe. Maybe you know, that's but... what you do, and then you you lose, and you 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 lose forever freedoms which you used to have, or you lose forever in our case a standard of living, which you used to have as well. And you can't get it but back. We can't, well, that's not true because if, as you say, it was a bit dull and and kind of grim in the sixties and the part uh, most of the seventies. Suddenly, fifties, forties, fifties, sixties. Well, 50s, I didn't live in the forties or the fifties. No, I didn't, but I know people who did. Yeah, they, it was there were times. In well, the it was 40s, a world war on, which didn't help. Hang on a minute, we won the war, didn't we? We're living as yeah, a defeated but the fifties was one of the most expansive and 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 spendthrift decades of all. Well, you know, I you've never had it so good. I, I, was what Harold Macmillan said, wasn't it? It was pretty. Huh, it, the, the, I think we never had it so good was was probably the early 60s. But the the 50s, were, and I do remember them, were pretty bleak. Oh, they were. No, listen, I, I, I know I, that we... I, I remember it as a period, basically, of, 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 of chill blames and lard. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, it, it wasn't, uh, people often accuse me of, of hankering for the 1950s. It was the reverse of the case. No, quite. It was a horrible, grubby, and it was, it was, everything was broken. Yes, was the, but I grew up the in the 80s the as was well. still really, right. really chewed up by I, the war. Yeah, but I grew into adulthood in the 80s, basically, and there was never a better decade for opportunity, uh, for uh, equality, for absolute and utter fundamentalist market economics, which raised Britain out of all of that nonsense and the strikes and the general problems in the three-day week and suddenly the 80s with margaret thatcher and ronald reagan two of the closest leaders on either side of the atlantic with a great relationship who basically forced the russians into capitulating and giving up the soviet union yeah i used to think that but i, I doesn't again well, that's what happened it, well, it doesn't stand out so much examination and particularly if you worked in any of the industrial parts of the country it was a very bleak period again with people simply losing jobs uh, which has sustained family life and civilization in huge numbers, whole communities... Yeah, well, they shut the pits. pieces are not forgotten, I have to say. And also foolish things, in my view, like the destruction of the council estates, which, uh, w- w- which were a great loss. And the, 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 that, the destruction of council housing, one of the biggest political mistakes in this country in the, in the, in the, in the past 50 years. Uh, the, look at the, the co- housing benefit, which is the nearest we get to a substitute for it, costs as much as the Royal Air Force. Mm. Uh, and, and doesn't actually provide anything like as, as much of a, of a, of a, of a good... Subsidises landlords. People who can't afford to buy 
uh, houses. Yeah, I know. I agree with that. Who need who need houses with gardens to live in? So I think Thatcher, and as for the the the, the, the destruction of the Soviet Union, well, maybe. But I mean, that, that's something I do know a bit about, and I think that uh, the, their their role in it may have been rather. Yes. Than they, All they I'm like saying, though, Peter, is that is that the bleakness of the fifties and the sixties well, and seventies yes, did come to an end. So but you know, you, it's not you, right to say you, that it wouldn't ever change. No, but if you travelled in that period in what was then West Germany or indeed France. Uh, what you found was that they were these countries were which had done much worse in the war than we had uh, had actually had achieved a much higher standard of living than we had. Mm. Well, uh, they've often, always been enviably so. I mean, the, the, the French used to refer to the thirty glorious years. Uh, during that time, we, you know, paying off our, our debt and reduced this this greyness, were far far behind them in standard of living, and 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 it was very evident to anybody who travelled that we had we had we suffered for many decades. And the, the really yes, bad but, thing, but, but certainly in France, it's the people who suffered, Mike. Well, the people who've done the fighting and the, yeah. and, the, and the enduring. But also in France, I mean, there were massive pockets of what you can only be described as rural poor, oh, yeah. which, which we didn't really have in this country. And I remember it because we used to drive as a, as a family in our Austin Cambridge A60 um, <laughs> across uh, across the continent of Europe. My mother was the only driver because my father failed his test and never took it again. Uh, and we used to drive to Venice, to a place called Lido di Esolo, where we camped. Every, yeah. every summer. So we went through Germany and Austria, and I slept through quite a lot of it, but I always remember in Did France... Did you get your own food? Um, no, I think we, 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 stayed, we always stayed in people's houses, strangely enough. My yeah, dad had this... A lot of people took their own food in those days because you could only take a very small amount of money abroad. Yes. Uh, yeah, it was, was, it was the, the old, perverse. The, the currency restrictions, it was written in your... You went to the bank, you've got the money, it was written in your passport. Yes, that's you right. You couldn't take any more. I remember and, that. And we were all complete... Therefore, British, um, and British people didn't go to America no. in those days well, was, I, unless they got a special permission from the church. No, I know. We'll have to wrap it up very shortly. I'll I know, just but finish it's fascinating, off. isn't it? It, it is fascinating. It was an era of, of considerable privation and we, it was caused by getting into debt. And, and, we also, and we also had to keep changing money as we crossed each border and we then stagger into sort of post offices to try and find something that spoke the local language and so we need to change. And my father would empty his pockets with all these coins to try and change from francs into into lira to Deutschmarks into, you know, whatever else. But anyway, Phoenix, it was great. We'll talk some more fascinating stuff. Peter Hitchens, uh, week eight is next Monday. Don't miss it. 
Now, lots of you have been calling in today with all sorts of different messages and people, generally speaking, I think, unless they belong to some kind of militant trade union, are quite happy to consider sending their children back to school. They've been off for a very long time, all the way through the Easter holidays. We're almost reaching the point at which half term would be kicking in. And I think, for me, my 15-year-old who would have been doing his GCSEs is not going to go back to school until September because he's leaving uh, to go to college anyway. He hasn't got his GCSEs to do. There's nothing effectively for him to do, so there is no point. However, for the 13-year-old, I think there is definitely a point. Let's talk to Calvin Robinson uh, and find out what he makes of it. Well, Calvin, a very good afternoon to you. Hello, Mike. Thanks for having me. No, thank you very much for, for joining us. You wrote a piece in the Daily Mail the other day, which, which, which I read with some interest, and I thought we should get this guy on, because we're hearing from all sorts of people at the moment, and unfortunately they seem to be associated with trade unions, that, you know, they're frightened of going back to school, that this is not the right time, that they want the science to be proven to them that uh, it, it is now, you know, pretty much risk-free that kids can go back. What's your take on it? I think that the, uh, the unions are taking a political stance. I think they're making unreasonable demands of the government because it's a conservative government, yeah. let's face it. And uh, the unions used to be there to look after and protect the workers, in this case, the teachers. Yeah. And they've become political entities in and of themselves. Um, for example, they're saying, you know, we need to know how the government's going to advise schools to, to self-distance, um, implement some social distancing in classrooms. That is impossible. Yes. We're never going to be able to have proper distancing with young people. It doesn't work. So we need to look at the science and say, actually, are children primary spreaders? The evidence suggests they're not. Um, Is it going to get any safer than it is right now? Probably not. Uh, Young people are as safe as they're going to be throughout this this horrible pandemic that we're in. So we might as well get the kids back in. And there's plenty of reasons to do so. And I'm, I'm up very, very worried that we haven't been seriously looking at opening schools. Yes, absolutely right. I mean, what's it like in your own school? Because one of the things I, I don't hear these teachers who say they don't want to go back to, to school say is that an awful lot of schools have been operating as normal, or at least not as normal, but, but in some capacity, since the beginning of the lockdown anyway. Yeah, you know, you make a good point, because we're not talking about reopening schools, really, are we? We're talking about a phased reintroduction of yeah. more pupils, because schools have been open this whole time. And, mm. you know, we've been in and uh, looking after key workers' children. In the school that I teach in, uh, we haven't had many coming in, but I also consult for a lot of schools in London, and schools are doing some amazing things with remote learning as well for yes. pupils that are at home. But this is my biggest problem, in that the in- unintended consequences of this is that the social divide is widening. Mm. We have so many young people who don't have access to a computer at home or if they do you know they're sharing it with siblings or parents are working from home they don't have access to remote learning now children from more privileged backgrounds do they've all got their own laptops and they're fine and if they go to private school they're they're getting lots of fancy resources sent home kids in our state sector especially in the inner cities are missing out on so much crucial learning yes like one of your callers said earlier you know they've gone a third of a school year now uh, without any, any education at all. Right. And we're talking about you know, GCSEs and A-levels. We're going to have to look at the work they've done so far and try and figure out a grade, a best fit approach. It's not, it's not good. It's not good at all. No, it really isn't. And what I've found, and I'm sure you might have found this from some of the, the, the students that, that you're in touch with, you know, my 15-year-old was quite sort of shell-shocked initially. His, you know, because I was from that, I suppose, uh, generation of people that, you know, I went, to, I went to a pretty good school. I went to a grammar school, actually, when I was growing up uh, back in the 70s. And then I went yeah, on that. to go to university and all of that. But I was never particularly academic. So I thought, my, if, I, my 50, if I was 15 and they cancelled all my exams, I'd be delighted. I'd literally be jumping for joy. He was really disappointed because he tried really hard in his mocks and he hadn't got quite as good a result as, as he was expecting. So he was really trying hard to improve on that. And then suddenly it was like the rug was pulled away. And, you know, it was actually, I had to do quite a bit of 
what you might call um, just converse, conversing with him about it to make sure that he got through it because a lot of kids will have been quite badly affected by that. Yeah, I've been consoling a lot, particularly yeah. A-level students that have been worried about not having, not having the chance to mm. show how good they are and put all their work to place. I mean, I can relate. When I was at school, my, my teachers said I would flop everything, and I, I aced everything. But right. that was because I was lazy. I didn't really like doing coursework. And when it came to the exams, I put the effort in, and I sat down and revised and got them done. And a lot of young people are like that, you know, especially boys. Um, you know, we're not that focused on our coursework, but then we want to prove ourselves in the final exam and mm. get the top grade, and that won't be possible in the system that we've got um, coming back. Yes, exactly right. And for the 13-year-old, you know, definitely he needs structure in his life because, you know, no matter how many times you try to do homeschooling as a parent, it's no substitute for teachers. I think a lot of parents have actually realised, along with many of us who have realised how important people who work in supermarkets are, I think a lot of us have realised how important teachers are because it's a really difficult job. It is. Thank you for saying that as well. I think... Uh, it's been underappreciated for a long time, but I think parents are trying, finally figuring out how much work and effort goes into what we do. But we are the experts in the room, like I said in the article. Mm. I think without us, it's difficult. This is why Google hasn't replaced schools, because you need the expert to guide with pedagogy, with, with teaching knowledge, guide the learning process. We can't just sh- throw facts in front of young people and expect them to understand. Knowledge and understanding are two different things. Yes, exactly. That's our, that's our role. Yeah, of course. And I mean, you must be itching to get back to that because what you don't want, I presume, is to come back to school in September to be met with a kind of rabble of kids who have basically got no discipline, have forgotten everything they learned uh, up until about March of this year um, and have, have completely forgotten how to operate in a social atmosphere. Yeah, unfortunately, that's going to be the case whenever we go back now. We're going to have to start again from scratch and get everyone back into routines. But like you said, it's good for their, uh, good for their well-being, being surrounded by their peers, not stuck in, at home all the time and all of that. Uh, so there's, there's other elements to it. Hmm. And what about the makeup of the unions versus the non-unions or the unions, the more militant unions versus the others? I mean, is your, do your schools all have different mixes of, of membership? I'm not a member of a teachers' union because I couldn't find one that wasn't uh, part of political, right. didn't have its own agenda. I think most people that sign up to the unions only do so because of the protection aspects. Right. I don't know many teachers that sign up because they want to be part of these militant armies that the, the unions are trying to raise. No, but it seems strange, doesn't it? Because they're very much, as far as I can, um, can see, in the minority. They're not in any way the majority of teachers. Most teachers that I know, and certainly the ones that I interact with in my children's schools, are like you. Yeah, and every teacher that I know wants to get back in the classroom because they understand, well, every state school teacher understands how much the children have missed out on and how much both the pupils and the teachers are going to have to work incredibly hard to catch up. I mean, we will do it, but the more time we have to do that, the better. Yes, exactly right. And somebody's just tweeted me, actually, to say it's worth pointing out that teachers are classified as key workers so they can send their own kids to school. I wonder how many of them are doing this but staying at home themselves because they fear for their lives. Well, it's a good question. I suspect that that's not the case for many of these um, sort of political teachers. Well, that, that's a good point. We haven't really talked about the safety aspect of this because we, we do risk assessments all the time in schools. So we'd have to do risk assessments on our phase return too. And mm. um, it's not like we're saying, okay, just shove all the kids back in the classroom and be done with it. Right. You know, if we will have uh, contingencies in place, and if a child happens to fall ill, then maybe that child has to go on go home to isolation, and maybe their class has to. And maybe we don't return with thirty kids in a class. Maybe we have half class sizes. Yeah. 
since we're only reintroducing certain year groups. There's plenty that we can do to make sure the environment is as safe as possible. Right. No one's advocating returning back to normality, so to speak. No, of course. And as 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 as, as it is in in every other aspect of life, you know, yes, we couldn't. Well, you know, if you were going to take that view, you might have shut all the supermarkets and told people, you know, to live off what they could find in the garden. You know, there is of course a risk, and there's no reason why, um, for example, in September, these same teachers who want to stop uh, schools from reopening have the same problem in September and say, oh, we still, we're still not convinced that it's safe. Yeah, absolutely. There's no, what's going to convince these militant unions? I have no idea. Um, the compromise I would suggest is to not make it compulsory. Right. Um, this reintroductory phase, allow parents to have a choice on whether they send their children to school or not and not find them if they don't, you know, for the non-attendance fee. Uh, and also, likewise with teachers, if there are teachers that are vulnerable or live in a household with someone that's vulnerable, yeah. then you should have the option not to return. Sure. You should be flexible and pragmatic. I think it's not that complicated. And I don't think that the government is suggesting anything other than that. I think they're saying, well, yeah. you know, they're not going to force people to send their kids to school. They're certainly not going to find them if they don't, because this is a very unusual situation. But I think most parents, because of uh, either needing to go back to work themselves or just because of their own mental health and their kids' mental health, would want schools to have or have the kids have the opportunity to go back to school because also to socialise with their friends. I mean, you know, my two boys haven't seen their friends, none of them, since, you know, March. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. substitute, uh, they play they play on PlayStation with them, I think, in games from time to time, but they haven't actually physically seen them. Yeah, it's, it's not healthy at all, is it? There's a lot of work that needs to be doing on the, on the well-being of young people, and I imagine there's going to be a lot of research in this for years to come on how it's going to affect this generation. Yeah, absolutely right. So at the moment, Calvin, are you sort of teaching a little bit? Doing what, what are you actually doing? I'm doing some teaching. Um, I'm sending resources to children. The school that I work in, we're not doing uh, live sessions right. online for safeguarding reasons, but we are sending work out to, to young people. That's good. To interact with them as much as possible. It is good. It's very challenging. Yeah. It's very, very difficult. Of course, because I would have been happier to see. I mean, my kids' school is, is, is pretty good, but it's quite a big secondary school uh, in Sussex, and they've not been great at sending out much work because one of their reasons for that is they say they don't want the children to be under too much pressure given that they're already in a slightly unusual situation, which I get. But, you know, I, when, when you hear that private schools have been able to have kind of almost a register that you can sign into to prove that you're up and about and that you're actually doing to do two hours of work in the morning, I think it would have been great if we could have done that. Yeah, some schools are doing fantastic stuff like that. I know Michaela School, for example, in Brent, uh, in a deprived area in particular, is doing amazingly for a state school in that they're calling up um, if students aren't in lesson within the first few minutes and really trying to make sure everyone is there paying attention. Um, and there's, there's schools like West London Free School also doing fantastic um, remote teaching in the state sector as well. So it is being done, right. but it's a balancing act because we have to kind of think, you know, parents are already struggling to maintain their work-life balance. They've got to work from home and all of this. Do they have the time to support the children? What kind of learning can we provide these young people that they don't have an adult in the room to support them? Right. It's very, very tough. Yes, it really is. Well, thank you for your efforts, Calvin, and, and, and good luck with uh, the rest of the year, as it were. And at some point or other, you. you might be able to have a bit of a holiday. <laughs> but uh, but <laughs> you, you never know. Calvin Robinson, uh, secondary school teacher at a state school. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Has anybody else noticed there's something a bit odd about Nicola Sturgeon's hair? It keeps changing colour. Every single day, it's a different colour. Now, I know we're in a new studio, and we are in a whiz-bang technological revolution of sorts, and the colours are much more vibrant than they were in the old studio, but I'm pretty certain that I'm looking at Nicola Sturgeon today. Last week, she had two different shades of red. 
Now it's kind of gone brown again. Could it be a wig? I don't know. Let's talk to Tom Whipple, who is, of course, science editor at The Times. Tom, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon. Hello. I mean, funnily enough, we're going to talk about rainbows. I think sort of Nicola Sturgeon's had all the colours of the rainbow uh, on her head over the past couple of weeks. I, I, I missed that, but I'll, I'll take your word for it. She's <laughs> cheery in these lockdown times. Yes, indeed. Now, this is a very popular uh, period for this show because 12.30, ever since the start of lockdown, we have been doing a homeschooling section and we've covered a great many interesting things, uh, including this, uh, the moon. We've talked about how weather is predictable. We've talked about earthquakes. We've talked about mathematics and equations. I'm now relying upon you to explain to us how rainbows form. Yes. So, well, I'm going to give it a go. It's one of these things that uh, is very useful with diagrams, but I think we can do it over the radio as well. Okay. Um, and I think I, I, should, I, th- I think the explanation of rainbows is one of these great triumphs of the sciences over the arts. Yes. Poets have been poets have been busily writing about rainbows and how beautiful they were, and then science came along and explained it. And Keats threw a fit and said, uh, <laughs> said that scientists were unweaving the rainbow and ruining the rainbow. With is that is science. that a bit like shining the light into the magic of the royal family? Well, exactly, yes. Scientists have revealed the mystique. Now, I actually think, unlike the royal family, that the more you find out about rainbows, the more interesting they are, (laughs) rather than the reverse. Yes, quite. Um, So the first thing you need to know about rainbows is that light bends. And you can see this if you're standing in a swimming pool and you you look at someone's legs and the legs seem a bit bent. Yes. And what happens there is when, when water goes... when when light goes into water, the point at which it goes into the water, it slows, and this causes a bit of a tug. If it's coming at an angle, it causes a bit of a tug, and it bends as it goes into the water, and so you get the light bending. So right. that's the first bit. Now, the next bit you need to know is that light is made of lots of different wavelengths of light from, well, all the colours of the rainbow, mm. and they all they all bend by a slightly different amount. Right. So although you can't see this when you're looking at a... Uh, looking at someone's legs in a swimming pool you can with a prism or with actually with with rainbows yeah. you can see that the light as the light bends it spreads it out and you start getting this spread of colors and you might see this on a sunny day as light comes in through the glass in your window you might yes i have seen that yeah yeah the little little rainbow and that's that's a little rainbow and that's causing by that's caused by this it's called refraction yes and it's just the spreading out of the light and that separates out this white light into its constituent parts and that is the easy part, and that's how you can see a rainbow on your wall. But the question is, the really interesting question is, why are the rainbows this big curve that you can never see, uh, that you can never get up to and touch, you'll never find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? Right. And, and why is it this circle in the sky? Yeah. Um, because it is a circle. If you've ever seen one from a plane, you can see a complete circle. Really? It's just that when you're on the, when you're on the Earth, obviously the bottom of the circle is hidden I didn't by know that. Earth. Because I was going to ask you, can you presumably you can't fly through a rainbow because it's like that unattainable line of the horizon that you never get to, right? <laughs> well, you will never, ever get to the rainbow, no matter how fast you go. Right. Um, but it is, it is a perfect circle. So for this, and this is where diagrams might help, but I'm going to try my best. Okay. Um, imagine a single raindrop. So the light goes into the raindrop. It bends a bit, mm. refracts a bit. Yeah. It hits the other side of the rainbow, the other side of the raindrop, and reflects back, mm. and then comes back, refracting all of the time. That single raindrop has split up the light. Now, every single raindrop in the sky 
is doing that. If you've got the sun behind you and a rainstorm in front of you, as the light hits it, every single raindrop is bouncing the light around back to you. So they're all producing little rainbows, which is why wherever you stand, you see the rainbow. But the interesting thing is, if you imagine a world full of these, well, a sky full of these these raindrops, which is what you've got, they're all bending the light by exactly the same amount. So you will only see the light that's bent by some of those raindrops, and they'll be in a circle. So if they're bending it by, let's say, 40 degrees gives you the red, 43 degrees gives you the yellow, well, all of the ones that are exactly 40 degrees away from your your eye line, Mm. with the sun behind you, will give you the red. And so that'll be a perfect circle, 40 degrees around you. It's not 40 degrees, by the way, but I've I've forgotten the exact degree. And then all of the ones that are... 43 degrees from you, which again is going to be a perfect circle centred on you, will give you all of the yellows, and so on for all of the other colours. And so you end up with this beautiful arc in the sky that if you walk towards it will move away from you as fast as you walk, uh, that, that is a rainbow. Yeah. And uh, it's, as, as Keats would say, that's not quite as poetic, but within that there are some of the great insights into how light works. Yes. uh, Well, there is a certain poetry to science, I think, and the way you've explained it has been very good. Answer me this, though. Why is it that there are only seven colours that make up light, uh, the the, the basic sort of white light or whatever we want to call it? Why is it only seven colours? I think probably because we've only given them seven names. Mm. Um, Your brain is quite good at categorising things, but it is a continuous spectrum and you won't be able to find, if you looked at any particular part of that rainbow, you won't find a clear divide between one colour and another colour. They'll be no. continually changing. Right. Um, but it's, it's just the case that we happen to have names for particular colours, and you can, do, you can do experiments where you can go to cultures which have different ne- colour names, mm. and they categorise things differently. So I think what you're seeing there is a psychological trick rather than a ah, physical okay. one. Now, you're probably quite substantially younger than me, so you may not have been taught the old um, uh, the verse which reminds you of which order the rainbow colours are in. Do you know which it? Which of York gave battle in vain. That's the one. I'm glad to see <laughs> they're like still it. teaching it. Well, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's very good. Despite his short reign, few kings have a legacy as enduring <laughs> as that. Right. Now, let me ask you one further question, which you may or may not be able to answer. Does light travel more slowly through water than it does through air? Yes, it does. And that's exactly why, that's why you have the effect. It's about a third slower. Ah. Uh, so as, that's why, as it goes in, it bends, because it's... Uh, because it's travelling a little bit more slowly. It's still quite fast. It's still quite quick. So, I mean, if I was to have a sort of snorkelling episode and took a torch down with me, um, I wouldn't be able to light up the undersea cave with as much quickness as I could if it was a bat cave up above. No. I don't know why I thought of I mean, all that. It would still be... Uh, it would still light up considerably faster than your brain could notice. Yes. Um, it would still be fast enough to go round the Earth about once every six seconds. But, right. Uh, it would, uh, nev- nevertheless, yes, technically it would take a little bit longer. Fantastic. And do rainbows look any different in any different part of the world? Or are they always, I mean, you've said that there's circles if you're lucky enough to see one from a plane, which I never have. Um, what about a double rainbow, by the way? I should ask you about that. So How does that work? A double rainbow is when, so what, what happens is that the light bounces round, um, but it can go round again, and it can go round in slightly different ways. Mm. And so... M- I mean, most of the light just goes directly through the raindrop, and you don't see this effect at all. It's only the light that's uh, totally internally reflected in it. 
And yes, there's a second route it can go, which then gives you a rainbow at a slightly different angle. So you'd be looking up at raindrops that are fainter because they're sending most of their rainbow light to someone who'd be standing far, far above your head. Right. And a little bit to where you're standing. And yes, if you're lucky, you can get a double rainbow or even a... Yeah, but why do you not... uh, Why does that not happen all the time, though? Um, Because, I mean, it it probably does. I mean, it it definitely does. It's just a lot harder to see because it's a lot Mm. fainter. Okay. Fascinating stuff. Tom, thank you so much. You've uh, enlightened us uh, today on the subject of rainbows. Tom Whipple, their science editor at The Times, uh, talking about double rainbows. I don't know if anybody's ever seen a triple rainbow. I've only ever seen a double rainbow. Um, but they are wonderful things. I'd love to now see... I now have to see a fully formed circular rainbow. I, you know, whenever they start putting planes up in the air again, I'm going to have to get in one and see if I can find a rainbow. Chase the rainbow. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.